You're listening to Talking Threat Intelligence, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the new challenges of today's threat landscape. Each episode, we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners to share stories from the front lines of corporate security. And now, on to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Robert Value, And joining me today is Harry Kemsley, president at James Group. Harry, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Hey, Rob. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Now, Harry, last time we chatted, you and I had a great conversation about how OSINT is perceived in the wider intelligence community. You said that OSINT is still often kind of seen as the outcast of the intelligent yeah. world, especially in relation to more established domains like human, aerial, or, or signals intelligence. But for a couple of reasons that you outlined in our conversation, that's really starting to change. Can you tell yeah. listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, so let's be clear, first of all, Rob, about what we mean by open source intelligence. And I think it's quite an important definition just to get clear about, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of that. So open source intelligence derived from open source information and data is one of those things that we at James and I think the wider community have really started to understand the full power and potential of. Sometimes described as the intelligence of last resort, the thing that will go to last. Interestingly, I'm seeing increasingly with our customers globally, a number of our customers going to open sources first, using that for context, using that for indicators, driving their more exquisite capabilities to the point of interest, perhaps more quickly than they might have otherwise found it. So what are the two things that I think have changed in the recent time? Well, first of all, I think the recognition of the power of open source has become greater in many, many parts of our global community of customers. And I think that's driven by events, not least right now with Ukraine. I mean, just think about how much open source data, distinguished data from intelligence, by the way, but look at how much in open source data we're getting from the most unusual and unlikely places, satellite imagery, video content, et cetera, et cetera. All of this stuff is pouring into our TV channels, into our news media channels and so on. So I think the prevalence, the almost omnipresent amount of open source information and data is giving rise to this recognition of the potential, the power. The second big change, I think, is the fact that technology is finally starting to deliver the promises that it has made for many, many years and let us down on. I would describe myself as a person who suffered the consequences of technology rather than benefited from it all too often. I've had, like many people, I'm sure, many a time when a technologist has convinced me that they could solve all my problems only to find out, of course, that they can't, certainly not as quickly as I would like them to. I think that's changed. I think the arrival of techniques to find information, to collate it, perhaps summarize it, put it into a shape that allows an analyst to get onto that next valuable step, the bit where they can add the human value to what machine can do, has also been the big change. So recognition of the potential and the arrival of technology that can actually make a difference are the two things that I think have really turned the corner for open source. And it's starting to swing from being the intelligence of last resort to now perhaps the primer that gets us started, gets us to the foundations we need to move on to the more exquisite stuff that we all know that we can do. Well, that's really what I'm interested in diving into a little bit deeper today. But I'd be curious if you always had this kind of appreciation for for OSINT or if there was a specific experience that you had where there was like the light bulb moment where you realized this was really becoming powerful. That's a good question. I arrived at Jane's eight years ago, walked into the oldest open source intelligence agency of its type, although it wasn't an agency at that stage. It was still very much a publisher. It was a, an organization that's still then famous for its books and magazines. And yet I found this Aladdin's cave of 120 or so years 
of intelligence that it's been collecting since the late 19th century. And it's, it was just everywhere I went, I found literally, in some cases, boxes and boxes of primary source intelligence that have been collected from wars that we've read about in, uh, in history. And then I started to look at all the information that was around, and I mean information that was around James. And when I started to see that brought together by some of the analysts I worked with when I first arrived eight years ago, I started to see insights that I would have given my high teeth for when I was uh, in service previously. And so the revelation to me was, actually, if an organization like Jane's can bring this together, and other organizations are doing the same, if we could st start to stitch this together as a sort of ecosystem of open source information providers, we can generate some really interesting intelligence insights that whilst they're not of course, actionable in their own right. I don't think there'll ever be a time when the open source environment would provide something that is directly actionable in the military sense of that word. The fact that we can prime the pump was something that I could see a number of years ago. Then it was about moving James from being a publisher to being much more of a an analytical hub and thereby an agency for intelligence from open sources. The revelation, therefore, for me was just that incredible wealth that wasn't just contemporary. It wasn't just what I could find in the open source environment in that moment. It was I could go back through decades of intelligence and thread it forwards to the point where I can say, actually, I now can explain those insights from today from the benefit of the hindsight you can generate by enduring uh, monitoring, which is what James has been doing and other agencies as well. So that was probably the moment that I began to really appreciate the power. I'd seen glimpses of that previously in my service in the military. But it was always undermined by the lack of technology to really bring it forward, or it was a lack of the contextual and historic information that really put it in a position where I could understand its significance. So I guess if I had to identify a watershed moment, it was somewhere between when I left the service, first got some site, the technology was starting to come through, but then I began to see the real wealth of information that was available that could be converted into intelligence. So you're like a kid in a candy store the first day, just looking at everything <laughs> that was at your fingertips. I was there. exactly that. I felt like I was in uh, the intelligence Aladdin's cave. And imagine if you were a person who's interested in history, if you were interested in intelligence, and I could open a box marked Second World War, and it was all the precursor stuff through the 30s, all the things about what happened in the 30s, how that then manifest in those first few months in Europe and so on. And it's all there. It's all primary source. It's a staggering resource. It really is. But of course, if I now step forward into the 90s through the uh, the demise, the thawing of the Cold War into that period which dominated through my military career of countering insurgency, counterterrorism and so on, again, you can find the vestiges of all those emerging groups starting to appear through the late 90s into the consciousness of the media, consciousness of the military. But it was there in the James Archive. And therefore, you plot those things forward into the modern day, and it becomes a very, very rich resource. Yeah. Kind of diving a bit more into your military experience, and I'd be kind of curious to hear what you have to say with your connections in the industry. Elaborate a little bit more about how OSINT is perceived today. Let me go back then, sort of 15 or so years, the latter stages of my service career. I became aware that there were answers to the questions I was asking as a senior decision maker that I just couldn't get to. Sometimes, evidently, those questions could only be answered by exquisite technical means that um, our governments have. But very often, I was aware that those answers actually were available in, quote, a good enough answer, not a perfect answer, a good enough answer was available from other sources, what we now become known as uh, open sources, publicly available sources, or indeed commercially available ones. But again, I couldn't get access to them. I couldn't really 
understand how best to reach out into those sources and bring them forward and integrate them with my other understanding from classified means. I certainly couldn't do it quickly. Therefore, I think it's fair to say that 20 years ago, open source was very much the poor twin of the family of intelligence. What's different today is what I was saying a few minutes ago, Rob, where I'm now seeing open source is used for a sort of foundational layer of understanding and context. I'm seeing open sources from both commercial and publicly available sources being used as gap fills, those things that if I'm going to an area that I don't yet have full understanding of, but I want to get a basic understanding of that operating environment, open sources, particularly the commercial ones like Jane's, can provide you that foundational layer. So that's the first big thing that I'm seeing today with our customers globally, certainly in the Five Eyes community and the European customers that we have. Secondly, as I again mentioned earlier, you have the opportunity with open source to start to detect those emerging threats, those emerging trends. So there's that early warning, indicators and warnings piece, that if you know how to grapple with open source environment, which is not the same as dealing with a sort of pre-formatted signals intelligence environment, it's much more diverse. It moves in some respects more quickly. There's the variety of media and so on, the so-called three Vs of volume, variety and velocity. Once you know how to grapple with that, you can derive insights that become indicators and warnings. So that's the second big category of open source utility. The third, which actually in recent times, Ukraine has certainly become very, very clear to some of our customers, is the fact that it is shareable. You could use it for plausible deniability. If I were an agency of a trigraph in the US or the UK uh, agencies, the European cousins, and I needed to share something right now with Lithuania, Moldova, and I knew that from highly classified sources, that's problematic, to say the least. That is not an easy thing to do. If I had a good enough, credible, auditable answer from a commercial source like James that is shareable, that's attractive in itself. So if I can identify something that I need to let a partner know who's not part of my security community of interest, but I need to let them know something, then being able to do it from open or publicly available commercially available sources is a very big bonus. So those are the three categories that I'm seeing very regularly now. The latter one, perhaps a bit of an emerging trend, the previous two of foundational and indicators of warning, certainly more established. So if I got that right, it is more shareable information, it's faster to get your hands on and easier to access than trying to go through all the classified sources. Yeah, that's the third bag. Yeah, the fact that I can get that stuff to them very quickly, I can put it in a format that's very easy to share, and that they can share it. Yeah, that, that's the sort of third and emerging trend that I'm seeing from open source intelligence, OSINT. Well, I'm going to put on my skeptic hat for a, a second here and maybe make this a bit more of a debate. But I could think of like a couple of objections that someone might have that is, you know, maybe sure. still skeptical about applying yeah. OSINT. The first one that tends to come up quite often is I can think about all of the mis and disinformation that's deliberately right. being right. spread online that is uh, contaminating a lot of the information that I have. Yeah. How do you respond to a criticism like that? I take it on full board because I absolutely agree. There is a huge amount of mis- and disinformation. Um, maybe we'll talk in a minute about how you machine unlearn that which has been driven into the machine by machine learning algorithms. How do you then unlearn when you've put something in that was wrong? Maybe we'll talk about that in a while. But in terms of the question, completely agree with this misinformation, disinformation. Let's be clear. State and non-state actors are deliberately filling the open source environment with disinformation because they want to convey a certain picture. They want the narrative to be seen in their own particular ambitions. So how do you deal with that? Well, the way you deal with that is through exactly the same in the open source is exactly the same as it is in a classified environment through good tradecraft. You don't take things at face value. You don't take a single source and accept that that is true. So multi-source 
you like, triangulation, cross-referencing of information is the first of three parts of the process that helps you deal with, mitigate those risks that you're alluding to there with mis- and disinformation. So multi-sourcing. Secondly, if you can interlock the insight that you've derived from multi-sources with other intelligence, if you can interlock it, then the likelihood that it is mis- or disinformation still is much reduced. A good example would be James might well find an event within which it could discover, for example, the hint of a brand new unmanned air vehicle, never seen before. The Chinese have deployed a brand new unmanned air vehicle. But how do we know it's brand new? How do we know it's actually different to anything else? Well, we could find multiple sources that suggest that that is the case based on a variety of different parameters, uh, specifications, weapons load, et cetera, et cetera. But I've, I've then got to interlock that with the order of battle data and intelligence we have. So we know what the Chinese order of battle is. Can I interlock it with a particular part of that? Does it actually fit within the order of battle that we understand or not? Does it actually have the sort of specifications we'd expect? That interlocking process is a secondary way of ensuring that you are mitigating this mis- and disinformation. If it doesn't fit, it doesn't mean it's not true. It means it's an outlier. It's potentially an anomaly. And as anybody who's been close to intelligence will know, Outliers and anomalies need attention. They're either false, in which the case will disregard them, or they're, in, they're a new piece of information you didn't know before that you need to find a way to understand. So that interlocking process is the secondary part. The third part is the human in the loop. The ability to build up expertise is more than just learning a process. It's that experience you build up over a period of time. And one of the ways we deal with that is we have very, very senior analysts in Jane's been doing the business of intelligence either in a military environment, national security environment, or civilian, huge amounts of experience. They have, it's not a gut feel, it's much more tangible than that, but they have a sense of judgment that allows them to assess what looks plausible, what looks credible, and to question the sourcing process, the analysis of sources, the interlocking of multi-sources to come up with that first insight, the assurance that it has been interlocked with other intelligence types to ensure that it's valid. So those three steps, which we call triple lock, are a way of mitigating that that, that problem of misinformation, disinformation. What I would add to that, though, Rob, is let's be clear, what I've just described doesn't happen in, in an instant. If you need an instantaneous, time-sensitive answer to your question, you don't get to do triple lock, those three stages, in an instant. You need time to do that. James talks about not wishing to be first, but wishing to be right. To be right takes time, takes judgment. Time sensitive, mission sensitive. And mission sensitive needs you to be more right than wrong. So if you're going to say to a customer or to a colleague in the intelligence world, here is the answer. I've only had five minutes to look at it. You're going to put a huge health warning right across the front and back of that to say, I've only used one source. I think that source is generally pretty reliable, but I can't guarantee this is the right answer. And then the analyst who's received it will understand what they're receiving is not necessarily uh, gospel truth. Just thinking back to, I had, I had Michael McCabe on the podcast a while back, the yeah. CEO of Intelligence Fusion. And yeah. you know, you're just describing the process of, if you hear that there has been a bomb went off in London from one Twitter account, well, it's kind of suspicious, right? You'd right. expect something in the middle of a big city to have many people reporting it. <laughs> yeah, or if right. it's from an account that's maybe two months old with a funny looking logo. Yeah. I'm not going to give that. Okay. I'll, I'll make a note, but until you right. can verify that with a lot of other sources, sure. um, what other criticism I could think of OSINT too, is just maybe there's better information in the classified sources than what would be available freely online. How, how would you respond to someone who's saying that? I think if we compared apples with apples, that would be true. 
if I point the exquisite capabilities that I know governments have at a specific question, the chances that the classified answer will be better than the open source is high. I think that's a reasonable statement. But let's be clear, there isn't an agency in the world that has all the capability and all the capacity it needs to look at everything that it needs to look at all of the time. It doesn't exist. I don't care what anybody tells me, that doesn't exist. The infinite capability, infinite capacity organization doesn't exist. Consequently, you do have gaps. You perhaps lack context. Perhaps you need that foundational uh, sort of priming the pump, getting you started load. You could spend the next six or seven weeks, days, hours, collecting that information, collating it, verifying it, building it, or you can step into the open source environment and just get started on the next and most important phase. So I think it's a complementary relationship that I'm suggesting, not a replacement. I absolutely don't believe open source intelligence, and certainly not information or data, would be ever a replacement for classified capabilities. But given I have a limited number of classified resources at my disposal in government, knowing where to point them and the context in which I am pointing them to understand the results I'm getting from them, that's a hugely valuable partnership. It's complementary. So no, I, I don't disagree with the statement. I just disagree with the premise that you would try and replace classified with open source. I think that's a fool's errand. I think what's a better idea is, as I've said a couple of times, find a complementary nature to really enhance the use of classified uh, capabilities rather than to replace them. It'll be kind of interesting to see how things evolve over the next 10, 20 years. Like you're saying, 10, 20, 30 years ago, the amount of information wasn't out there. Right. So it wasn't an apples to apples comparison at all. It'd be interesting to see how things yeah. play out over the next couple of decades yeah. when there's you know 10 times more information out there. 20 well, they times. say that in technology terms, the, the rate of increase, the acceleration is constant. It's a constant acceleration. Well, if that's true, and we've accelerated as much as we have over the last 20 years, I don't think we could predict where we'll be in 20 years' time. I'm not sure we could predict where we'll be in five years. What I can discern, though, that is that when I go into the world of open source tools, those freeware tools we can all download, Five or 10 years ago, if I was really competent, I could take a bunch of online tools from open sources and I could manipulate them and I could get them to do effective things. But I needed to be fairly code savvy. I needed to know what I was doing with my computer and the keyboard. These days, a doofus like I can go and do it. I can go and download a couple of tools, get a pretty good answer to most questions and present a fairly good foundation. Now, if I extrapolate that for three, four, five, 10 years, the chances are that in a period of time, there will be effectively search engines and analytical engines that will be available to us that probably will outstrip most capabilities that are available today. So I see this as an as an evolu- an evolving situation, and the evolution of these tools is rapidly increasing. Let's take a transition now. I want to go more into some practical takeaways. Mind your brain sure. for a little bit of that as someone who's built out an intelligence team, been leading an organization like James for a while. So I, w- I want to pick your brain for some yeah. uh, lessons for our listeners if I'm getting started, I want to build an intelligence team more in a corporate environment. I know that's not quite the world you're from. Where would you suggest I get started? Well, as with any task, understand the outcome you're looking to achieve. You know, what kind of intelligence agency you're trying to build? What, who are you trying to support? What are the kind of questions they're likely to ask? So understanding the outcome, first and foremost, um, the ends. The means that will be available to you will vary all the time. So be agile. Don't get yourself fixed on one way of doing things. And then as you're going through creating your team, one thing I've learned from previous life and my current experience at Jane's is the surprising amount of utility you can get from the most surprising individuals. So the guy that's done Arabic studies in an international school, sure, he's going to have a perspective of what might be happening in the Middle East. 
Well, you bring somebody in from insurance, and I do mean insurance, you know, an underwriter who's very used to assessing risk with an objective eye and to quantify it, they have a very interesting perspective on how you start to create risk models around certain aspects of world affairs. When you bring those two individuals together, Middle East analyst with Arabic studies, with insurance underwriter, you get a very interesting dynamic from that, which is not purely national security, military intelligence focused. What I'm saying in short is diversity, diversity in your team and how you apply them to the task that you set yourself as an organization is the key. And one of the things I really enjoyed in the last few years at James is we've recruited a very, very large team of people, but we've taken them now from a very, very wide range of disciplines and backgrounds. And they're not all military. Sure, we have a number of ex-military intelligence analysts. Of course we do. Many of our customers are in that realm. But the cross-fertilization of those with other types of analysts, other types of backgrounds, experience, academic background, etc., has proven to be, for me, one of the really important differences that we've seen in the recent years of Jane's. And I think that's a lesson that applies elsewhere. I don't think it's unique to Jane's at all. Well, we had an interesting point in our conversation last week where we were talking about how surprised a lot of the younger members of your staff were that there was a big shooting war in Europe versus maybe some of the more senior staff and then emphasizing the importance of age diversity and then just in, in all these kind of other contexts. And it's a theme that comes up a lot over the course of this podcast yeah. with different guests that I've yeah. had on. Yeah. If you grew up in a world that's only really dealt with insurgency and terrorism events, and that's the entire scope of your experience, sure, you'll have read about heavy metal war fighting from years gone by, but you'll have you know, said that that was something that happened years ago that doesn't happen anymore. And here we are facing nigh on classic military force or military force conflict in Europe. So yeah, it has taken some of the younger analysts a bit of time to adjust their minds to this is pure heavy metal war fighting. This is getting down to machine on machine, man on man, as opposed to cyber war, which is still there, of course, it's still part of the modern warfare uh, environment. But to be clear, many of them have grown up in this sort of hybrid war, other means war that we are all familiar with in the last 20 years, rather than what we got used to back in the Cold War days, which was the concerns about tanks rolling across the inner German plains. What is a common mistake that you see a lot of maybe analysts or teams make that kind of when they're starting to apply this? The most obvious thing is actually going back to the question you asked me a while ago about misinformation and disinformation. Let's be absolutely clear. There are some incredibly compelling disinformation campaigns that are out there for a long period of time. So they're enduring. They are pumping information down certain channels, multi-channels. And the prevalence of what some people call the echo chamber, the fact that in the way I search, I create the responses that fit within what I appear to be asking for. I think that makes sense. The idea that I create an echo chamber to the things that I want to believe and I see and I want to believe. That is one of the big problems with the open source environment. And that's why I said earlier, you have to use multiple sources, you have to cross-refer them, and you have to interlock. If you don't do those two steps, then what you end up with potentially is that echo chamber, which tells you what the sender wants you to believe. And let's be clear, many marketing algorithms within many social media platforms are specifically designed to force you into a channel which is now echoing what your marketing algorithms worked out you want to hear. That's probably the biggest problem with the open source environment as an analyst is ensuring you don't find yourself in that cul-de-sac, that echo chamber. I was just having a conversation yesterday with an OSINT analyst and we were just mentioning uh, TikTok. And it's just so difficult 
to find content on the site because the second that you start clicking around, it's just constantly feeding you with the algorithm what you want it, yeah. what it thinks you want to see. And yeah. it, it is a pain in the butt looking for anything yeah. on Absolutely there. Right. Have you ever tried to get it to shift the position? So I think with uh, Instagram and TikTok, you can actually say, I don't want to see this again because I don't like this topic. It's not a site that interests me. It takes a huge amount of hits on that not interested button for yeah. the algorithm to start to swing it away from there to something else. Uh, I'm sure Instagram disagree with that, but the experience that I've had and I've seen is that actually it's quite hard to shift it from its first assumed position of this user, Harry Kemsley. I think he's really interested in this. I'm going to keep firing on that channel. So yeah, it, it is hard to dissuade the algorithm that you're not actually interested in that. I've been trying to do that with just my social media feeds in general, especially like YouTube. I don't want a lot of negative news coming in. I'm, I'm trying to customize how it looks like, but it knows exactly what I want to see, like the deep lizard brain. And yeah. it is finding every point. And if I'm not constantly fighting that algorithm, it gets really, yeah. really difficult. Yeah. But then going back to the point that you made about disinformation too, um, we've seen the same thing in the corporate environment of course. is, you know, the, these companies are becoming big targets for nation states or just um, misinformation, you know, rumors flying around online yeah. And, yeah. and trying to, you know, playing dodgeball, trying to get around a lot of this stuff and figuring out whether the truth actually lies. And it's yeah. a big, big challenge for analysts. I think it is a big challenge, Rob, but I think it's one that, like many things in evolution, will start to drive success when people become, again, to coin a phrase, more data literate. When people come to understand that they are being persuaded or people are trying to persuade them, and the narrative and discourse they're having with social media and other forms of media is designed to persuade them of certain outcomes. Once people become clear about that, they'll start to identify that actually that channel is often trying to push that message and they will start to see it in that light. Data literacy for me is probably the next big evolution for our generations ahead is they become more and more data savvy about what is happening to them and they'll start to tune that out, I'm sure. Yeah, I had a great interview with uh, uh, Melanie Trisa King. Uh, she's in the, in the science world, right? It's for right. Um, Skeptical Inquirer. And that's a lot of her work is trying to go and it's like, we're not going to teach kids facts and stuff about science because that's all changing all the time and you're just going to yeah. forget it. Yeah. And her whole philosophy is let's teach you the critical thinking skills you need yeah. to evaluate scientific yeah. claims. This flatter stuff on YouTube, probably not real, you know, being able yeah. to do that. And it was fascinating how she created uh, like inoculation exercises to inoculate <laughs> yourself against misinformation, create conspiracy theories and things like that. I love like that. that yeah. Is, a data inoculation. I love that. That's yeah. a great phrase. I like that. Yeah. All right, Harry, we're coming up all the time. I promise to steal from you today. What's the one takeaway you want listeners to remember from our conversation? I think it's probably this, that when you next consider a question, whether it's in the intelligence environment or not, start by looking at what's available to you in the open source environment, whether that's publicly available or commercially available. I almost can guarantee there is an answer available that is certainly good enough to get you started, probably good enough to answer most of your question. And depending on the question, the amount of additional work you've got to do will vary. But my experience of the open source environment over the last 12 years since I left the service is that it is rapidly improving to the point now where it is almost, but probably never actually, actionable. And that change is not a decreasing change. The rate of change is increasing. The power of open source remains and is growing. So I would want people to understand that if they're not in the open source environment, they are missing a huge, hugely powerful tool. All right. And Harry, you want to tell listeners uh, what you're working on now and how they can get in touch? 
Uh, so James is available through james.com. You can reach out to us through that as you see fit. I would commend anybody that's interested in a role in open source to have a look at James. We have a huge amount of opportunities right now, by the way, recruiting heavily. I think that the key message for me from today from James is having been around 125 years, we've been doing this a very, very long time. We know about the problems and how to solve them in an open source environment. To so give us a call, we'll help you. All right, Harry, thanks for being on the show. Pleasure, Rob. Thank you for having me. Again, that was Harry Kemsley, president at Jane's Group. Uh, folks, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Talking Threat Intelligence. As always, never miss an episode by subscribing to the show at all the normal places where you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like more insights on building a successful threat intelligence program, check out our resource page at lifebraffinc.com slash blog. That's lifebraffinc.com slash blog. See you next time.